The information in this broadcast is for educational purposes only and is not provided as a professional service, medical advice, or is it intended or implied to be a substitute for diagnosis or treatment. You are encouraged to confirm any information obtained from this broadcast with other sources and review all information regarding any medical condition or treatment with your physician and other appropriate healthcare providers. Hi, I'm Pete Levine. Welcome to Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified. I'm a clinical instructor and clinical researcher. I've co-authored dozens of scientific journal articles about brain injury recovery, and I'm also the author of the book, Stronger After Stroke. I'm Deborah Battistella, occupational therapist, creator of the OT's Guide to Mirror Therapy, and an OT educator. I have a lot of experience working with survivors. Most of my clinical practice has been in a certified stroke center. Pete and I are especially interested in talking about what rehab, neuroscience, and clinical research all have to say about the brain and recovery. But don't worry, our job is to make this stuff simple. We're here to make it so that everyone, clinicians, clinical students, caregivers, and most importantly, the survivor, understands what it takes to leverage their great neuroplastic brain for recovery. Having other kinds of problems like diabetes flares up or whatever it is. And so they cycle back through to the therapist and what the therapist sees is not the people getting better because they're gone. There's Kathy Spencer. They're people that are living their life and doing the work and doing stuff that's important to them. The therapists keep seeing the sick people who are often sick because they don't exercise. Mm -hmm. And the therapists don't interface with the successful survivors. And that's the other thing, like some of the people that I've met through some of the survivor Facebook groups, they've come to my talks and, mm -hmm. you know, I've got to meet them and, and they're still working and they're pressing and they're exercising. And those people, I think it would be good if you knew who those people were and that you kept in touch with them. And we track Facebook in the last episode. So now let's say something nice. There's some groups mm -hmm. on Facebook that you can get in, engaged in that are really good to help you know the full rainbow of the kinds of survivors that exist. Yeah. Let me start with this. Hey, Deb Battistella, how are you doing? Hey, Pete Levine. I am great. How are you? Good. What did you do on your 45-minute um, break? Well, I took a walk. There's a little, little little fun thing going on this weekend for Labor Day here in my community. I went the opposite direction. <laughs> it was too stimulating for me. And uh, then I just was kind of picking up around my house. It looks like it looks like a tornado went through here. I'm not sure what happened. Is it packing and unpacking from your trip? Partly. The other part is all these school books out in binders trying to get my stuff organized, which reminds me, did you guys start already? Yeah, we started. Okay. What'd you do on your break? On my break, uh, mm -hmm. we we pretty much staycationed it. Um, no, like our forty-five minute break here. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> and that I'm like, break. Oh, no, yeah. there's pressure that I didn't go on vacation. Um, let's see. Uh, I had a sandwich with tomato, avocado, 
and a slice of Swiss cheese on bread that has the entire grain in it. Mm. You know that kind of bread? Like, it's no sugar. I'm down on sugar. I'm. My doc tells me that I'm uh, pre-diabetic. Oh, really? My A1C is, is wrong. And she says that that's when uh, your pancreas knows that there's sugar and that something should be done about it. But you've been so overwhelming. It just says that I'm not even going to try anymore. So unless you pull back on the carbs. <laughs> and I love me. She said, do you like carbs? I'm like, I love carbs. Who doesn't? Yeah. Really? I mean, I mean God. The, the processed carbs, though, are the ones that immediately turn to sugar. Unlike an apple, an apple has a lot of carbs, but it, it takes so long to digest that it doesn't overwhelm the pancreas. So I think I can turn this around without drugs. That's what oh, I'm Oh, I'm sure you can. Yeah, I think yeah. I can do that. So mm-hmm. we'll see how you it can. goes. Yeah. So um, what do you want to talk about now? What would be a good, good thing to, to go to? Are we, are we sticking with Facebook questions? I think we should. And I really like the person who has the question about goal setting and motivation. So I don't think we need to mention this person's initials because she's an OT and a researcher. I think it's pretty, we don't have a lot of those in our group. No. So yeah. Yeah. I, I'd like to know what sort of strategies can be effective for goal setting to motivate long-term commitment to the recovery process. Oh. Yeah. So that would, that little flummoxed me or flummoxed me. You know, it, st- it did me in the beginning, but then I thought about it and I think that this is going to be something that we can, we've already kind of been talking about this. So I think if we tie this into habit, meaning and home programs, it really is the heart of what therapy is. If we step out of that complete medical model where I'm in charge, you need to listen to me and we enter more of a collaborative coaching type of relationship that I think it's possible for people to have their own motivation and we're going to tap into what really does drive them. What do you think? Yeah, I think so, but it's weird. I don't know if she's coming at it from a clinical standpoint or from a research standpoint, because I see this big split in the question. Mm. It has, it has, it's a little bipolar, this question, because I see goal setting as something that therapists do. Mm-hmm. Usually in the initial eval and, and subsequent evals, they, they set goals that you hope to attain and you usually do in rehab. Yeah. Um, but then they talk about um, motivating long-term commitment, which would be outside of the clinic you would think. Well, so that's I, I guess I it lost. depends. It depends on the setting, but maybe if we think about this across the continuum of care, um, because I kind of think of people like Kathy Spencer, who are, she has goals. That woman has goals. She knows how to make goals. And not all of us are like that, but I think that's where the professional can come into play and help somebody know how to think about that and incorporate the caregiver or Anybody on a support team for a person. It could be somebody's friend. So what are your thoughts about it? Like what what do you is this an answerable question? I have thoughts about it. I don't know if it will answer the question, but maybe if I just share my thoughts and you share your thoughts, that it will spark an answer to the question. (laughs) Okay, we're doing that. We're we're gonna do it that way. Okay. I don't know how else to do it. Um well motivation doesn't always drive us to 
take steps to achieve our goal. Because when you're when you're working on a project, like when you're writing your book, there are probably some days when you don't really feel like writing, but you do write because you have a goal or a timeline that you want to meet. So I think I think motivation sometimes gives us a a false sense of something. I don't know that we don't need to be motivated to do what needs to be done all the time. Like my messy house. I'm not super motivated to clean, but I do have a desire to have things organized. So that's what makes me take the action steps. Okay. Um, so that's very much from the survivor's standpoint. And, you know, corollarily, the caregivers and whoever else is on the team. Mm-hmm. I think that rehab loses it in the curve. So I don't know what they call it in Australia or in England, but here we call it discharge. You're discharged from therapy. And it's very difficult for somebody to be motivated by a therapist because therapists are great at motivating. Um, that's kind of what they do. But what happens when you go home? Mm-hmm. And let me run this by you because- I, I counsel survivors to go back to therapy if they can, if they can afford it or if they can find a way to do it. But I also sometimes counsel them to not go back to therapy, but rather to, if they need somebody to coach them, that they go after an athletic trainer. And I just want to define this because my son is going into athletic training. And there's a big difference in the United States between a personal trainer and an athletic trainer. A personal trainer is He's working on that too. It's a certificate. It takes you six months. It's all online. Yeah, uh, an athletic trainer here in the United States is a master's degree, and the courses that they take, it's everything that a PT or an OT does and more. They do a lot in kinesiology. They do chemistry. They do biology. They do all the hard science. There's a lot of math involved. And then on top of it, they work to study different pathologies so that if somebody comes in with that pathology, whether it's an orthopedic pathology, but a neurological one, like a brain injury, they can kind of deal with that. Because do you really want a coach on your side who says you've plateaued and the system backs that coach up and says, you've plateaued. Because if we're talking about motivation, it might be a good idea to get somebody who's not in rehab to say, you know what? I'm not going to look at you as a survivor or a brain injury or whatever it is. I'm going to look at you as a low-level athlete playing a higher stakes game. So what would you... Okay. So you have limited range of motion in this, that, and the other thing. Uh, Let's get to work. And I know exactly what to do because I look at you as an athlete. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so... If a therapist wants to be seen as this person who views the survivor as as the athlete, if we want to adopt that type of mentality, we still have to acknowledge where we are in the rehab process. And I always go back to the home program that we talk about over and over and over again. Step away from the checkbox mentality. Set your person up to succeed from day one. And I think a lot of times this comes down to having the hard conversation with your person that you know we don't have the crystal ball. We can't see into the future. But oftentimes, recovery is difficult. It's challenging. It's long-term. And some of the things that we're going to ask you to do are boring. Just It just is boring. And that's one thing that Lynette and I talked about when we were talking about the RecoverX, that brain control interface. She just tells people right off the bat, this is it's really boring. The RecoverXs? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The whole process because it's it just it takes a lot of concentration and thinking. And th- those are things that we tend to interpret 
as being boring, but it's what helps us get our focus better and it's what helps people move better following a stroke. So if we really understand habits and routines and the roles that people have, we should be incorporating information from the science about those topics and get people started right from the beginning in rehab, doing their home program in their in their room but with your guidance and supervision and feedback that you can check on them in the clinic so that they feel confident doing that on their own. And then you're always talking about the plateau. So building into that home program, what what are some suggestions they can do when they plateau, if they plateau, and helping them know how to think about it and maybe suggesting who they go see or who they talk to after discharge. Yeah. And remember when they're plateaued. And again, I, we have an international audience. This is great. So I don't know if it's the same in other countries. In fact, it wasn't the same in this country. It used to be prior to the prospective payment system here in the United States, uh, you could hold people a few weeks after they plateaued so that you could set them up for the rest of their life. But when they're discharged now, they're discharged with an HEP, hand and photocopies, a home exercise program. And when they get it, um, it's this ironic document that has them do the same exercises that created the plateau because the therapist doesn't want to give them any new exercises because they might be liable if they go home and get hurt. I think some forward-thinking therapists do do this, but there's not necessarily a built-in stepwise increase in whatever the rehab is. So this idea of incorporating the home exercise program early, but then there's still got to be, like if if the clinician wants to stay in the loop, there's got to be a loop. And I wonder if maybe COVID and, and the tele-rehab thing um, might be helpful here that I wonder if there is, I was just reading, we did a, one of the very earliest tele-rehab things. It was, I think I mentioned it before, it was Bioness and um, and we gave people a laptop and it was in um, rural, Appa- rural Appalachia, which is a yeah. part of the country that doesn't have access to a lot of great healthcare. And we were able to get a bank of OTs to talk to these people in the, in the fo- foothills of Kentucky or wherever they were and have them use a pretty complicated piece of technology. But is there a way to keep in touch with people and say, you know, um, Hey, you know, do this next. Well, I think it's safe, even if I don't measure your range of motion, that you could try to stepwise go up a little bit more weight or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Because the therapist doesn't just motivate, they also provide a plan. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I wonder if we're answering this nice nice person's question. I hope so. I think it's important what you're saying about providing the plan. That is the breakdown where a lot of people get stuck. Like They have this idea, they know what they want to achieve, but they don't know how to achieve it. And that's one of the things from the book, The Power of Habit, that Charles Duhigg talks about. Um, having Knowing what your goal is, even if it's for the day, and setting yourself up for the, giving yourself the steps of exactly what to do the night before so that you don't waste your time wondering and trying to put it together. It's all, you already know it. So I think, you know, based on what you're saying, there I know that there are a lot of therapists starting these mobile Part B practices right now, and people don't have to be homebound in order to get therapy here in the United States through that Part B practice. And you can actually just check in with people 
or see them every so often under that type of a plan. So maybe that's something that would be beneficial. So Part B is a part of Medicare that provides a sort of supplement, um, a long-term fix or a long-term bridge. Yeah, it can keep people out of the hospital. Because they're they're doing something Mm -hmm. with a clinician. Yeah. And and so how does the clinician interface with people in, in that scenario? They can go to their house. They could probably have a combination doing some of the teletherapy, you know, depending on where they're located and, and the situation with each person. Hmm. So I kinda tell- I like what you're saying about the more of a consultative approach almost, yeah. or kind of like that in a combination of coaching. Yeah. And so then like I still think that, you know, remember you reviewed an article on the podcast and it was about they interviewed both survivors and therapists and they said how do you feel about pushing people to their physiological limits after a brain injury once they're medically stable and everything's okay and the survivors were like yeah and mm-hmm. the the clinicians were like yeah cuz they're so frail and elderly and and that's why I started my part of this with with the athletic trainer, not just because my son is going to need a job, but because he's going to have taken chemistry, which he already has, and kinesiology and anatomy physiology, and they're board certified and they're licensed. They have to take algebra and trig and psychology, physiology, pharmacology, and they work under the direct supervision of a physician. Now, you Hmm. tell me, if you've plateaued, who would you want in your corner coaching you? a therapist or an athletic trainer. Now, I don't think that there's a right, like we had a guy in this area that we send stroke survivors that were highly motivated to. The guy was like a semi-pro hockey player here in Cincinnati and he was Canadian and he was just like, he'd work the crap out of people because that's what good coaches do. They find the edge of your ability and then they just push you right on over. So, I wonder if there's a place for telerehab and also consultations and part B stuff, and then having therapists think about a low-level athlete rather than thinking about a, a, an old person who, or, or a person who's been diminished in some way. There's a lot. I, I mean, I would encourage therapists to join some of the stroke survivor and brain injury survivor Facebook groups because there are people doing crazy stuff, survivors doing crazy stuff to push the issues. And we're talking about like hardcore athletic stuff because maybe they were athletes prior and they're not giving that up. And mm-hmm. it's just they realize it looks dumb and it's, it, but they want to see if they can run, even if it looks dumb. I mean, that's mm-hmm. what athletes do. So there's got to be some some room in there for something good. Yeah, it almost sounds... I'm glad that you brought up that article that I found because I forgot about that. But I do think that our medical system, at least here in the United States, it does kind of keep therapists in the fear, you know, with being afraid of getting sued, being afraid of all of these things, afraid of harm. And that article did say that when therapists were told these parameters, that as long as those parameters were met, people were considered medically stable and they could push them a little harder. And I also think where we work and the type of patients that we have and can influence us because there are some people who don't have, they just don't have the desire to be well and live a healthy and well life. And we can have a tendency to think that that's how everybody is. And there's also something else in our healthcare system where we don't tend to listen to the patient. You're, you're muted. 
I'm muted. I'm mm-hmm. now unmuted. So um, th- just to play off the first point that you made where um, we tend to think of people as not athletes. I mean, when you're discharged from therapy, it's there's this fork in the road and it's a decision that you make. Um, most people just relax a little bit after the rehab is done. They go home. Maybe they'll get some home therapy for a while, but they melt into the couch and they just don't do very well. And often those are the people that end up falling and and having other kinds of problems like diabetes flares up or whatever it is. And so they cycle back through to the therapist and what the therapist sees is not the people getting better because they're gone. There's Kathy Spencer. They're people that are living their life and maybe going to work and doing stuff that's important to them. And so the therapists keep seeing the sick people who are often sick because they don't exercise. Mm -hmm. And the therapists don't interface with the successful survivors. And that's the other thing, like some of the people that I've met through the uh, some of the survivor Facebook groups, they've come to my talks and, the, mm-hmm. you know, I've got to meet them and, and they're still working and they're getting ankle fusions because they're sick of the AFO and they're pressing and they're exercising. And those people, I think it would be good if you knew who those people were and that you kept in touch with them. And, I, you know, we trashed Facebook in the last episode. So now let's say something nice. There's some groups mm-hmm. on Facebook that you can get in, engaged in that are really good to help you know the full rainbow of the kinds of survivors that exist. Yeah. The other thing that I'm thinking about after hearing you explain about the athletic training education and wanting an athletic trainer to help you following stroke. Now, I mean, we're talking physical things. We're not really talking the cognition piece right now. I don't think we are. But there's, there's. That's the next question. Yeah, I know. There are um, some people who get very territorial about their degree, their career path. So, well, you know, and they'll say things like, "Well, why does an athletic trainer get to do that?" You know, this is, you know, my practice act. This is my practice area. And I wonder what would happen if we all collaborated with each other and and learned what each other does. And how, how we can learn from each other to help the person at the p- place where we interact with them. Because the truth is, if I'm working in acute care, then I'm probably not working in rehab or home care or many years down the road. And so I wonder if we could help people better if we did a little bit more collaborating and tried to understand a little bit better. Well, isn't that exactly what NeuroHub does? I mean, don't they have like a satellite thing, Doro and Lynette, the two OTs that are, it's cash only business and they just, they find all kinds of ways to rehab people. But as I remember, they were, they splintered from another entity that's down the road now. And what, what kind of um, professionals are in that, that uh, part of it? Well, Pete, I'm glad you brought that up because I completely forgot to mention that I did get to go see that too when I was in Florida. It's a gym. It is such a cool gym. And they have athletic trainers. They have people who are going to school for PT. Probably, I don't know if they have any people going for OT. And I do remember them telling us that they do get a little extra training. I mean, they have the rock steady boxing program there. There were people doing that when I was there. They have some pretty fancy equipment. They have the overhead track system for gate training. They have the pool. And um, yeah, so these are people living in the community who can go and get some more help and people who are focused on helping people who have these neurological challenges. I think that's what 
Duro and Lynette had talked about in terms of what attracted to them. One of them did like an affiliation there or an observation. The other one started collaborating with them and they uh, saw, you know, these people being treated like low-level athletes. And it, it isn't just, they don't just treat, you know, people with brain injury. It's amyotropic lateral sclerosis and it's spinal cord injury and a whole bunch of other things. You mentioned they had students, but what were the professional designations of the people that they that they interfaced with there? I think they're athletic trainers. Athletic trainers. Okay. I think so, but don't quote me on that because no, no problem. Don't quote so me on that. we could probably look it up. Um, mm-hmm. So rock steady, you mentioned rock steady. That's usually thought of as a way of rehabbing folks that have had Parkinson's. People with Parkinson's move very slowly and they move weekly. And if you have them do boxing, which asks for exactly the opposite, which is quick and powerfully. And big. They, well, that uh, kind of confuses what rock steady is an offshoot of yeah. LSVT big. Yeah. But like getting people to move up, like, so the Parkinson's where they tend to shrink down and their movements get very small, you know, to hit a, to hit a, a punching bag, you can't move real close to your body. You have to reach out to it. Yeah. And the bag, yeah. it doesn't make a cool sound unless you whop it. Yeah. So it, it makes you whop things. And then you talked about the overhead um, tracking system where somebody can wear a harness and so they can challenge them, their balance and not fall if they do. So those kinds of things, I mean, I think all of that stuff is sort of athletic-y. I don't know how to say it, except we need to just remember that um, they want to be athletes, the good ones, the good ones. <laughs> yeah. Like there's bad ones. No, but but some people, you're right. They just, they're de- they don't care. You know, they're just as happy to sit down and watch TV and that's it. I think there's probably a natural inclination to sit down and not do anything. But remember when you were talking about in another episode, how you graduated from school and you said, I just want to go to work and come home. And then you got bored. Some people sit on the couch maybe for a while. Wow, I had a stroke. This was terrible. Okay, now I'm bored. Mm -hmm. And then they get rejuvenated with it, just like we all do. We go through ebbs and flows. Yeah. Yeah. It's important to acknowledge what goes on. I mean, people do experience a loss and they're they're likely grieving and they need that time. But we can't stay there. And the, and as clinicians, as friends, as family, as caregivers, we need to help encourage people and help them to get out and move beyond that spot if they don't do it naturally. And I mean, you know your person. Part of our role as clinicians is to infuse our knowledge into the education process to help people understand. A lot of people, they they just might not understand. And so we have this opportunity during this length of time that we're with them to talk with them about these things and help them to see and understand what a recovery process looks like. And if it's not something that they've been studying or learning over time, then they're going to need some time to understand it. And you can always tie these concepts in together and help them help them see where their their improvements are coming from what they did. And I think it's our job to paint that picture for them and get them involved. And that's really client-centered care and then putting them more in the driver's seat. And then you can always bring in the self-awareness piece and ask them, you know, what do you think about this? How did it feel when you did this? You know what? Just asking for their thought on that. Yeah. So one of the things that you might explain to them, as if you're a clinician, is look when you go home. Look, you have plateaued. That's the resolution of the penumbra. You may not want to get into that, but 
up till now, it's been brain coming back online. Now we have to borrow from other parts of the brain and it's going to be a lot tougher and it's going to be a lot slower. So we just want to warn you that this is what it's going to take. Not only that, but to, to learn anything and hey, Mr. Smith, you've learned a lot of things in your life and probably some of them were very difficult to learn. Maybe you're a lawyer or maybe you went to school to be a PT, who knows, or maybe you learned how to play tennis at a high level. It's always a disaster because you're you're trying to get the brain to do something and it's hard to get the brain to do something new. And this is going to be new movement for that part of the brain because the old part of the brain is now dead. So now you got to, it's really driving brain changes. So it's going to be hard and things like constraint induced therapy. And this kind of gets to what you were talking about. You give them a roadmap once they're yeah. discharged. This is what you can expect. This is how hard it's going to be. And then remember things like constraint induced therapy, there's a ton of positive reinforcement. This idea that some clinicians have, um, if you move in a way that's hemiparetic, it's the end of the world. Mm. You're going to ingrain synergistic movement. You're, you know, the, the bugaboo of synergies. And, you know, when in fact we can use all that great ugly movement to do things, not only like get more coordinated by using a different part of the brain, but also, um, you know, when you exercise, brain derived neurotropic factor comes in and then makes more motor learning even easier. So, and then the other thing you kind of hinted at is, okay, so they're going along and maybe they're getting a little bit better at home and yeah, maybe they're encouraged and thinking, wow, maybe I can get more therapy because they said, if my status changed, I can get more therapy. Um, but that means you got to measure. And we've talked about this before. You got to be willing to measure yourself and then take your data to the clinician and say, hey, look, I couldn't open my hand and now I can get my hand around this pen and kind of pick it up and drop it. Well, that's constraint-induced therapy. That qualifies you for constraint-induced therapy. And it's kind of a sea change. So yeah, there's some yeah. possibilities. I think we're unwinding this pretty well. I think we are too. Yeah. I am too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's going to get on Facebook and she's going to say, that's what not what I was asking at all. Well, that's, she can no. ask again and we'll try again. <laughs> it's a whole different episode. <laughs> Maybe we'll get her on the show so we can have a three-way you know conversation. Why? She's an OT and a researcher. Uh-huh. Why isn't she volunteering to be on the on the show? Well, I think I think in a way she she is. She's oh. she's waiting for us to to ask her. So I did. I don't know if you saw that um, comment I made in the Facebook group where I'm curious to know more about the research. And she, oh, I think I did read that. She yeah. wants to talk about it. Yeah, I think we're all getting to know each other and figuring out our communication style. What on the on the Facebook group? <laughs> yeah, we're a little group. We are a little group, and I love it. Is she the one who who said um, she has four kids? I'm enjoying the podcast while exercising during the lockdown. It keeps me sane. Was it that one? That might be. Yeah. Well, anyway, nice lady who asked the the crazy question. Mm-hmm. Only crazy because we can't get our heads around it quite. But um, maybe we did. It's um, a big question. Yeah. I think it's a big question, and it it gets at human behavior. Mm, yeah. You know, the other thing. You know, I um want to talk about. Wow, I stumbled over that. Um, that was really that was kind of hard. Um, the other thing I was thinking about is sometimes our answers come from places not considered OT and PT research. So I have I have the book The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg and Atomic Habits by James Clear, and those are 
both books that have a ton of research behind them about habit building. And the cool thing about Atomic Habits is he talks about just a 1% change. You know, we don't we don't change behavior, we don't become something more by doing great things all day long. We do these small things. It goes back to what I was saying about your book. You know, maybe maybe you only have time to write two paragraphs today, but those two paragraphs are written. Instead of putting it off for now tomorrow you've got to write two pages plus two paragraphs. And I think that sometimes we downplay the the tiny actions, but it is those tiny actions that we take that create big change. You're muted. <laughs> that kind of reminds me of the uh, this the statistical analysis of the top NBA team that's a National Basketball Association team and the bottom one, it's like a half a percent rebounding. It's a third of a one percent in free throw shooting. I mean, it's these tiny little incremental things that end up being quite uh, impactful. Yeah. Yep. The OT's name is, I'm thinking it's AC. Do I need to go on Facebook right now? No, you really don't. Oh, you really you should. should. I know. A, it's a morass. It's quicksand and you'll never leave. I know. I took the app off of my phone. That shows real growth. Yeah. It's only 1% growth, but it can make <laughs> all the difference. <laughs> it might be a half a percent. A half a percent. Hey everybody, I wanted to talk to you about something that's really important, recovery from brain injury. Since 2016, I've been doing consultations with stroke survivors and survivors of other forms of acquired brain injury. I get together with them on Zoom for about 45 minutes to an hour, and we have a good long chat about how their recovery is going, where they are in the process, what their ambitions are for their recovery, and what's holding them back. Often a caregiver is also in the meeting, and sometimes clinicians show up. Anyway, we end up talking about anything under the sun that's involved with their recovery. And then I take a few days, do the pertinent research, and email them back a sort of recovery manual dedicated to their specific recovery. Often it's stuff that comes straight out of neuroscience and neuropsychology and emerging technologies. I email that manual back to their survivor and every one of the suggestions in the email has clickable links to more information. I'm going to be putting a link on the show notes, but probably the best way to find out how to set it up is to email me at my personal email. And that's stronger after stroke, three words, all stuck together, no spaces, stronger after stroke at yahoo.com. You don't have to email me anything. In fact, all you have to do is write consultation in the subject line and I'll email you back with how to set it up. It's that simple. Strongerafterstroke at yahoo.com. So let's get together and jack your recovery up. That's right. So the other question that we got was from SC, and this is an OT, and she asks about remediation of cognition, mm. speaking of morasses and quicksand. <laughs> and I came back and I said, well, there's so many different forms of cognition. Um, this is what she wants, cognition and recovery. Um, what can you narrow it down? Because my area of interest is motor cognition, and I'm having a hard enough time with that. Mm -hmm. All of cognition, ACRM, I noticed, I don't know if they were reading my thoughts or something, but they have a course, a 12-hour course on cognitive rehab. Ooh. Maybe I can do ACRM a, a favor and put a link to that. It's a, it's a big 
big, thick book, and it's got a course that goes with it. And the course you can take whenever you want. It's online. Um, mm-hmm. You can go at your own pace. But it is a extraordinarily deep subject. It's kind it of is. like, it's because cognition is everything, you're asking, what about everything? And and this is why I really think that we should go into case studies rather than say, well, what do you want to hear about? Cognition. Mm-hmm. Great. Fantastic. Well, you know, and I finally gave up and said, well, maybe I should just generalize if we're going to try to answer this question. But I think probably a better idea is to get case studies and have them send them in and say, the cognitive issue this person has is, you know, figuring out times of days. He knows what the time is, but he doesn't know how it fits together with the day or something. Then we can go into research that goes after that, that kind of cognitive deficit. Yeah. You know, it's interesting what you're saying here, that cognition is everything. And yet it is so under addressed in rehab and physicians are so willing to discharge people to home or the community when they have significant cognitive deficits. And they can they can last for a long time and severely negatively impact life. I looked around on the web for somebody that I thought was qualified to talk about, uh, what are we calling this, cognitive remediation or cognitive rehab? Mm-hmm. Because it's not the realm of OT, although it's more the realm of OT than PT. And it's not the realm of speech therapy, even though it's more the realm of speech therapy than OT and, and PT, I, I think. Well, and, you know? I think it depends. So this is a discussion that I've heard multiple times. And the way that it seems to be divided, at least with the conversations that I've heard, is that speech does a lot of the reading comprehension and that end of cognition where OT has to apply it. So however, it's going to impact life. And I do think that people would fare better and we would have better interventions interventions if we would work together on this rather than trying to claim our own territory. I'm going, I'm, this keeps coming up for me and it came up for me in the research as well, which I'll maybe add later. But what do you think about neuro psycho? How, how do we say this? What is it? Neuro. So this was the, the person that I did contact and I sent you an email about her. She's a neuropsychologist. Yeah, that's and so that's like if you want to ask that question, I wonder if a neuropsychologist would be the best. Now, we're, yeah. I found one person that seems eminently qualified for this, and she's been at it for a very long time. I've seen her do talks online, and she is very articulate. Um, and I think that that's where we're going to need to go if we want to do that. That, and maybe I need to take this 12-hour CEU course to figure out. Maybe we all need to take that 12-hour CEU course. Well, you know, what I do is I'll take that 12-hour CEU course, read a lot of the neuroscience. Like, what are neuroscientists saying about this, neuropsychologists? And then I'll make my own course and start it. There you go. Yeah. yeah. way it works. That's the way it works. Yeah. I attended an AOTA conference in which an OT, a speech therapist, and I, I want to say probably a neuropsychologist all presented on cognition. And it was, it was one of the best courses I've attended. And the interesting thing to me is the questions from the audience is people, it always comes back to documentation and billing. Yeah. <laughs> and that's okay, because that's where people get hung up. That's where we're with. That's where they're getting stuck. But if we could help them understand that, then maybe they can stop focusing so much on that billing piece 
and really get into some good interventions. May I ask, because I don't know the answer to this and I'm not super sure you do, but I'm, I don't need to know codes for the work I do. I, do you happen to know any CPT codes? So CPT codes are these codes that we use in the United States that tell broadly payers, which are insurance companies, unfortunately here, um, what we are billing under. Um, um, can we bring but, the c- cognition discussion to a... Yeah. I don't know if we really... Did we even provide meaningful information? No, we really didn't. What we're trying to do is figure out how to figure out cognition. Well, I did find some good information on the Stroke on the Stroke Engine website. The thing that I learned on cognition is that people have to engage in the task, whatever that may be. They really need to move beyond pencil and paper unless they do their checkbook that way. They need to move beyond that and engage in the actual task to do that, to, to relearn. So if they are having a problem with money, they need to use money. They need to go buy stuff. They need to figure all that out. The other thing that I've learned is if somebody was not managing their checkbook prior to injury, it shouldn't be worked on. You're just frustrating yourself and them. Computer games are really good for helping improve executive function skills. And the Stroke Engine website has some good information on it for both clinicians and survivors that will help guide them. Is that enough? Hey, that's better than I did. Yeah, that was pretty interesting. So um, is there a particular chapter in the Stroke Engine? Yeah. So um, can we link just Mm -hmm. to that? It's a PDF? There is a PDF for patient and family information, but that web page has a ton of information. So I'll put the link for this executive function page that I'm on. Yeah, please do. In here. I think that may help mm-hmm. help folks. I think it will too. The last thing I want to say is it has yeah. to be meaningful for the person. So bringing some joy, fun, and meaning into it can help. I'm sorry. I have another thing. Sorry, Pete. It just all keeps coming to me. Keep going. Fatigue is a real factor. And when people are working on cognitive, cognitively demanding tasks, it can cause fatigue to hit more often. So people need to rest. You need to make sure that you're starting at that just right challenge. So don't start at a level that's too high for the person because then they're going to get frustrated and they won't want to even try. So it's just a, it's a constant dance of figuring out where they're at, what they can handle, watching for signs of fatigue, encouraging them to rest. And again, it's another opportunity for education because um, sometimes people want to push through. And I think in our, in our world today, people value pushing through and that's not going to help cognitive recovery. Mm. Okay. That's it. That's for, good. For real this time. I, I was just, <laughs> I was just thinking about um, this thing I saw in, on chess, the game chess the other day and how they burn a ton of calories playing chess because the brain just sops up blood, burns through glucose, burns through oxygen, produces a ton of waste. So yeah, it makes sense that you're going to get extraordinarily tired when you do this stuff. And um, and also you said something else that was kind of interesting that ties into this. Oh, the thing that you were talking about was um, if you didn't bounce your checkbook before, don't start working on it now. Yeah. Like I have always been terrible at dates. Like my wife just makes fun of me. She doesn't make fun of me. She's just like disgusted at this point. Like, Wait, you're like, terrible at what? Dates. Oh. Like the day of the week. Like, I, like, you know how the mini mental, the first thing it asks you is like the month and the date. Uh, honestly, it's... 
My answer is who cares? It's 20. Thank you. It's 2021. <laughs> and in September, mm-hmm. I think because school started and then it kind of gets blurry in there. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, it's Friday. I just looking at the computer. Like I, I, I just don't I do it. I just don't do it. And yeah. so, um, so don't start working on that because you're just going to hurt the person and it should be yeah. a just right challenge. Mm-hmm. Med- medication management is a big deal. Mm. That is one of the biggest things that I think can keep somebody from going home. And yeah. I, sometimes people are resistant to doing medication management a different way. I know we always had this, um, fake setup. But I I really struggled as a clinician with this pretend stuff that we ask people to do. And I know there is some value in it, but if it doesn't look like what they were doing, if it's not set up similar to what they were doing, then I'm not sure I see the value in assessing them. I mean, are we really assessing that? I don't, you know, there's just some stuff that I question. The other thing is, if people are resistant to having medications managed a different way, there are these blister pack systems that you can get the pharmacy to give you. You know, finding out why, what is the resistance? And it takes a little digging in to to that kind of stuff. And I think that's where you need to have your, your good relationship with them and just and listen and pay attention because sometimes the answer comes not in that conversation. It'll come, you'll, you'll get a clue through other interactions that you have with a person. I do have to ask you, what's that noise in the background? What's Oh my God. I don't even know. What you're, this is part of that party. We're having a whole bunch of fireworks. Oh, is that what the, it's like multiple? It's, like, <laughs> it's not a machine gun. Then there were sirens going on. It's like, there's a party going on. Okay. I live by a fire department. Oh, oh, are they are they setting up fireworks? I don't think it's. I think there really was an emergency. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So, hmm, cognition. Should I turn off my microphone? <laughs> you hear that? You hear that? <laughs> you hear that? Yeah. All right. I think we we need to le- let you go now, and so you can go drink a beer with the with the folks. Do something. Yeah. Yeah. Do something. Hey guys, I'm going to butt in here to kind of explain the way this episode is going to go. What you just heard was the tail end of an earlier episode called Deb's Trip and Listener Questions. So maybe we'll call this one Deb's Trip and Listener Questions Part 2. But here's the problem. This is all we had recorded, but it's only 40 minutes long and my OCD wasn't having it. So I thought I would add a section something we had recorded a couple weeks ago. It was the tail end of the stroke engine A to Z treatment options. You probably remember if you listen to the show at all, you know about the evidence-based review of stroke rehabilitation and stroke engine is part of the umbrella suite of stroke recovery and brain injury resources that the great Robert Tiesel, the physiatrist that runs the whole thing developed. And yes, his name is Tiesel. I found that out today. And in a way, it's a pretty good precursor to the episode that we're recording tomorrow, which is with Bob Teasel, as well as his protege, Marcus Sagley. I don't know if I told this joke before. I don't know. It was either last episode or the episode before that. And the joke was sort of like, uh, if we ever change the name of our podcast from Noggins and Neurons to something else, we would probably call it the Evidence-Based Review of Stroke Rehabilitation podcast. And I'm thinking about telling that joke to the good doctor tomorrow. See if I can get on his good side. Do you think that would be a good idea? We'll soon find out. Anyway, enjoy Stroke Engine A to Z. Part two. Uh, Studies found that aerobic exercise was more helpful than other treatments for improving balance, Mm -hmm. cardiovascular fitness, 
like your blood pressure, functional independence, your ability to perform tasks of everyday life, da, da, da. quality of life went up, function of your legs, overall function of your body, spasticity, I guess it's saying spasticity went down, I hope, walking endurance, and walking speed, and we know how good that is. And it was as helpful as other treatments for improving cognitive abilities. We know why that is. Mm -hmm. I mean, the brain loves blood and it gets the blood flowing through there, but it also produces BDNF, BDNF. Brain, brain derived neurotropic factor. So that's good. It increases dexterity. What, what? I know. Isn't that? It I know. Oh, here's another good thing it does it increases your capacity to exercise. So now you can never get off the treadmill. Excellent. Executive mm -hmm. function. Oh, we know what that is. That's higher level stuff. Like depression. It decreases. Hopefully it decreases depression. It decreases fatigue. This is the thing about exercise. People don't understand. They think I'm going to get tired if I do it. No, actually, if you do it, I'll you stick with it for a little while. You'll have more energy and mm -hmm. mobility, the ability to move around, muscle strength and quality of sleep. So I think that's a really cool document to hand to somebody who's had a stroke or a caregiver. So they like, you know, it only takes like a little thing to push you over the edge and become one of us exercising fiends. Yeah. Maybe one day I'll get there. I don't know. You know what Emma Levine says? She says a day without exercise is like it not even worth living that day. May as well just stay in bed. I've seen her oh, do yeah. that too, though. So it also <laughs> sort of depends. Hey, man, she's a student. She gets racked out. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so one of the things it has, they have a sample aerobic program. I might have to steal this. So initial and then later. So you start with five to 10 minutes warm warm ups. Now, check what? this out. This may even be in the form of bed exercises. So oh, bed they exercises. talk about it while in you're bed. still in the hospital. <laughs> Where do you do this bed exercise? In bed. In bed. So what? In the hospital. You could start in the hospital. What? Mm -hmm. And then when you're back at home. Crazy sauce. Mm -hmm. All right. All right. So we could get. So our point here, I think, is you can get lost in this mug and never get out. You can take quizzes and you can have things you can print off, but mostly it just makes it simple. It and does make it simple. It's hard, a little hard to navigate, but that's because it's so rich in content. Mm -hmm. So there is a nice clinician's guide as well for these aerobic guidelines, just saying. It even has outcome measures in here. I have to look at this. Yeah. It, it kind of goes on and on. It does. So the point is strokeengine.ca. Get on. And I bet you're going to find something for you and your uh, stroke survivor friends and your people with brain injury friends mm -hmm. and probably learn something a thing or two for yourself. All right. So it's probably pretty boring for these guys because they can't see. They're not excited because they, they're like, what the heck? And then I click on what? And yeah. Well, I hope they click on strokeengine.ca and the A to V interventions. There you I mean, go. I would click on A to Z because that's what it says on the page. But this is pretty cool. And for if any of our listeners are instructors, these are nice documents to give to students. Just saying, I might have used some of their information many times in my lectures. By the way, the interventions are broken down A to Z, but also by topic, if you want to choose that. So you have things like activities of daily living, cognition, and under cognition is cognitive rehab, something everybody mm -hmm. kind of wants to know about. So that's cool. Music therapy is in there too. Communication, yeah. um, positioning. Oh, sorry. Uh, complications with stroke, secondary preventions for positioning, dysphagia. It's divided up across the top of the page by assessments, interventions, consequences, and resources, oh. and then about and glossary. But that's the thing. Under interventions, there's multiple options. Interventions mm -hmm. A to Z and interventions by topic. 
Well, I was going to talk about the next one, A to Z. It's task-oriented practice. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's what they call it. I prefer task specificity or task-specific training. And they're buzzwords, huge buzzwords in uh, stroke-specific neural rehab research. So typically, recovery from stroke during the chronic phase is rewiring around the area of infarct. I mean, during the subacute In the penumbra? Well, that's the subacute phase. The penumbra is oh, coming okay. back. So the penumbra goes like, it, like, does that just disappear? Do we not refer to it as penumbra after we, reach, after we go beyond that subacute phase? It does go away. The thing that defines it is the fact that there's a lot of metabolic soup built up in there. And once that all resolves, and that's usually around the third month, but as those neurons come back, of course, you want them to go back to what they had been doing. And task specificity is a way of getting at that. Now, you're riding that wave of natural recovery during the penumbra coming back online, which is a subacute phase. But during the chronic phase, it seems to me that's where task specificity can really help out. And uh, yeah, it's the best way for anyone to rewire their brain to focus on recovery. The focus should be on a task. And I think that this is a point that you've made a lot. Like, are you really going to do, I don't know, like a pegboard? Well, unless they're a professional pegboard doer, it's not a really good way to do it. Which you Are there focus. any professional pegboard there, doers? There's a couple. There, there's a couple. They're not very employable, but they're out there. Okay. You know, sometimes pegboards are fine because they get into dexterity. And if you need to pick up a pen quickly, pegboard's probably not a bad way to repetitively practice it. But you should always focus on the task. So make sure that they know that that pegboard relates to the thing they really want to do, which is writing, let's say, or painting or whatever it is that a pegboard would relate to. So the idea behind focusing on a specific task or task specificity or task orientation is finding something that they're really interested in doing because you know meaningful matters, salience matters. So focus on something that they really want to do. So you said another word when you were talking about that. You used the word repetition. So they're going to have to do it a lot, which means it might get boring, correct? Well, it depends if it's something they really like doing, but it is uh, it is a problem. So I mentioned to you that this woman I talked to last night, that's a stroke survivor, she found um, two things really boring, uh, mirror therapy, and I mentioned that, but the other one was imagery. So these are two things that the great Robert T. Sell calls brain primers. Mm-hmm. So they may not do something in and of themselves, but they prime the brain for neuroplastic change going forward. So can you find a task, right? So this is now we're, we're out of the brain primers and now we're focused on task-oriented practice or task-specific training or task-specific practice. And the question is, can you make it not boring? And it seems to me that you can, but that's a challenge as a clinician and as a survivor. When you say she thinks that imagery is boring, I do wonder if it might be associated with having difficulty focusing, because that is a challenge for I have a problem with that when I try to engage in any kind of imagery because my mind wanders. And I think most of us have difficulty with wandering thought. So bringing bringing yourself back to that, it's hard. Well, I got something that can help, at least for people that have brain injury. I can't really help you, Deb, because who knows what you're going to do. You can probably ride motorcycles or something. But for mental practice or mental imagery, there is, it's the fine folks at Sabo working with Steve Page's team, put all of our original recordings for mental practice online. You can find it by going to uh, my blog, which is 
the Stronger After Stroke blog. And in the high right corner, under the Noggins and Neurons uh, big ribbon, you'll find mental practice recordings for stroke recovery. And if you click on that, they're all free and they have things like, and these are audio things. So in that way, and this is what I need to suggest for for my friends. So thanks for, for mm-hmm. reminding me of this, is that um, she may not get bored if there's a recording that she yeah. listens to and it takes her through the whole thing. Drinking from a can, eating finger foods, opening doors, pouring glasses of milk, uh, zipping up a jacket, dealing cards, da, 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 da. it goes on and on. And then for the lower extremity, there is standing up and sitting down. Remember, just sit to stand transfers. If you do that repetitively, it, it helps walking. Mm-hmm. So uh, standing up from sitting down might help you doing that. Uh, going up and down stairs, walking, of course, standing and balancing, stepping over obstacles. Oh, nice. So the person that you were talking to, was she trying to do imagery without any? Right. Oh, that is hard. That's that's hard. I mean, as a musician and a nominal athlete, um, if I start to think about playing drums, I can feel it almost immediately. And uh, and of course, you can listen to the music and imagine you're playing the drums and not move a muscle, but your muscles are firing just a tiny bit. Mm-hmm. So anyway, well, yeah. So imagery and, and, and mirror therapy are these priming things. And then you get into task-specific training. And it is interesting in the research, it looks like higher and lower intensity task-specific training may have the similar effects on upper limb function. So that's in mm. the lower extremity. That contrasts with the lower extremity. So in the lower extremity, higher intensity of task-specific training, which you got to think of walking first, but it could be doing the lower extremity new step or bike or stationary bike, as you suggested. And uh, task-specific training may produce greater improvements if they're higher intensity, unlike the upper extremity, where it doesn't matter if it's higher or lower intensity. And those improvements will show up in ambulation. So that's- kind of good news. What would be the difference between higher and lower intensity in the upper extremity? Like the number of repetitions, okay. um, the speed of the activity, all the things that you would normally think of when you think of athletic training kinds of things. Mm-hmm. I suppose you could add weights, but that's probably not going to happen. So yeah, hmm. speed, the number of repetitions, and then the duration that you do it. Are you going to do it for two minutes or are you going to do it for 10 minutes? So if it doesn't make a difference, if you do it for two minutes or 10 minutes. Yeah. I would have to look in the research and see, mm-hmm. because there may be like a falling, a cliff where if you do it for 30 seconds, it doesn't work. But if you do it for two minutes versus five minutes, it's about similar, mm-hmm. but I'm not even sure if that's yeah. what they're talking about. So uh, keep that in mind. But it makes sense to me that with the lower extremity, it does help because you're developing cardiovascular strength. And that's so important when you're Mm -hmm. walking. Yeah, Task-specific training may produce greater improvements in functional ambulation or walking when compared to conventional therapy. So task-specific training for ambulation is walking, kids. Couldn't be simpler. Yeah. Why do I get the feeling for the EBRSR and the stroke engine and the Canadian craziness? We could be here for like five days and never get out of it. That's good stuff. That's just good. Layer upon layer of stuff. Because all of this is layer upon layer. Are you going to give me like the the uh, metaphor of the onion? It's all layers, Jerry. Oh. Wait, was it was it Jerry? I forget. I don't know. Not layers. Maybe, oh, maybe People are. Oh, it's um. Oh, oh wait. God. It's Shrek. It's, Yes. It's Shrek. <laughs> People are like onions. Uh, okay. I think that's... <laughs> donkey. Donkey. That's right. Donkey. Yeah. We've got layers, Shrek. Um, 
Listen, I think we've jumped jumped the shark at this point and we've gotten silly. And usually when we get silly, it's probably time to, to hang it up. You have anything Something. else you want to say goodnight to the folks? Good night, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Good night, folks. Good night, Moon. Good night, Shrek. Good night, Donkey. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We appreciate your support and would love to hear from you. Ask us questions and share your thoughts by email at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com. That's noggins, the word and, spelled out, neurons at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with others you think will benefit. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'll catch you next time on Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified.